we are back. How are you, Ollie? Are you good? Did you call me Ollie? I would call you Ollie. Why would I call you Ollie? What the hell? You called Jesus me Ollie Christ. because Ollie's our guest and we haven't done a podcast for about oh, three Ollie years. Ollie on the brain. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. Right. Start again. Right. We are back. Welcome to How Did You Manage That? I just like to note that I've had to record this intro three times because it's been a while. <laughs> I'm Sophie. And my name is Ali. This is a podcast where we grab a different music manager every episode and pick their brains, find out their secrets, find out about the highs, find out about the lows, and try and get the inside scoop on how they have been managing their artists' careers. Our first episode in 2022 is a big one. We have got Ollie Isaacs on the podcast. He runs This Is Music, an amazing music management company and label, which is founded out of a real independent spirit. And if you love electronic music, you are going to want to lock into this. For those of you that don't know, This Is Music is an incredible music management company. They are a label. They've put on club nights in the past. They are just a kind of legendary electronic force in the music industry. Um, I think it's fair to say that also his roster have been nominated pretty much for every single music award you can think of. I think Mercury's, Brits, Grammys, everything. It is insane. We had so much to discuss with Ollie about that incredible roster, about how he started out putting on club nights and came from a very, very different background professionally to get into it. We talk about the struggles of the last couple of years. We talk about the successes of the last couple of years, including... Bicep, who released the second album, which for me felt like the soundtrack of the pandemic, and in no way should that be seen as a bad thing. I think it just shows how hard and how innovative they worked and Ollie worked to get that music out there during that really difficult period. And if you want to get in touch while you're listening, you can reach out to us at any of our social handles. It's at Manage That Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. We are hoping to start a TikTok but please don't hold me to it. Right, enjoy this. This is a brilliant Ollie Isaacs of This Is Music telling us how the heck he managed that. So joining us today is the amazing Ollie Isaacs from This Is Music. Um, They are a phenomenal management company. Um, they look after some incredible acts, the likes of Bicep, James Ford, Jada G, Roosevelt, Ross and Friends. Um, if you haven't, if you don't haven't heard of any of those artists, then what have you been doing and where have you been? Would be my questions for you. Um, so please go and check them out if you can. Ollie, thank you so much for joining the pod. Let's just start off with a really simple question we ask people, which is, what's on your to-do <laughs> list today? Uh, today is a busy day of meetings. Uh, I spent the morning thinking about uh, priorities for the year on a personal and a company-wide level, but I've got, um, after this podcast, three more hours of Zooms with um, managers in our team and artists and uh, one uh, pitch meeting with a label services company. Nice. Let's dive in just, first of all, talking about this as music as a company. Um, I thought it'd be great if you could, in your own words, kind of explain a bit about the company, the artists, the culture, dare I say it without sounding too wanky, the mission statement. Like, what are you guys about? Because it seems like a really interesting place. I mean, we had a note uh, that you've got seven managers on the team, is that right? Including a lawyer, a neuroscientist, a radio plugger and a live agent. Is that by design or just uh, by luck? (laughs) Not by design, no. Although it's, I suppose, 
part of the DNA of the company is that uh, whilst managers generally are jacks of all trades, um, we have people who are um, specialists in certain areas and, and bring individual kind of backgrounds and skill sets. I think to tell the story of the company, I probably need to talk a little about how I came to be a manager and, and my background and my sort of um, origin story, so to speak, within the music industry. And, and because the company really has grown from me being on my own, I don't know, like 15 years ago, it's, it's such a long time. I, I'm, I'm a bit hazy on the actual specific dates. I mean, this is music, I think was incorporated as a company in 2007. So is that 15 years? That's, so we're 15 this year as a company. I, I, I was managing probably for two years prior to that on my own uh, and was joined quite quite quickly whilst on my own by, um, by Luke Williams, who's one of the other directors here. So he's kind of been here the longest apart from me. Uh, I uh, was not really aware of the fact that you could have a career in the music business when I was uh, thinking about you know career paths and doing A-levels and a degree. Uh, I went to university, got a law degree. Uh, I qualified as a barrister. I practiced law as a barrister for a number of years, uh, originally doing criminal law. I was um, predominantly doing criminal defense work, but also some public law, a little bit of prosecution. Became disillusioned with that for various reasons, which I think are not the subject of this podcast. Um, and I ended up going to work in the city for a, a massive law firm, doing commercial work, uh, did a bit of corporate stuff, got into doing IP um, although not the sort of sexy IP that we deal with in the music business or in entertainment, I, I was doing, um, you know, sort of fairly boring domain name disputes. Um, I was doing patent law. I was doing a bit of trademark stuff, but it was all right. thoroughly boring and not, and not for me. Uh, so I, at that point, um, had a bit of a career crisis and was like, how do I do something with my life? that reflects my interest, my personal interests. And I was, I have had always been really obsessed by music mm -hmm. from the age of about, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, getting into, getting into listening to my parents' records and then eventually kind of adopting, you know, becoming a fan of, of artists on my own. And uh, I had basically for fun set up a club night um, in what is now the old blue last. Uh, it, was, it was actually called the old blue, old blue last at the time, but it wasn't owned and operated by yeah. vice. It was run run by a, an old East End gangster called Tommy, who I hope he's still around. He might not be. I don't know. On, Tommy. Um, but he was. You know, he, he went back. Tommy went back to the craze. He wore a sheepskin coat. He, he drove a secondhand <laughs> Jag, and he let us and he let us do parties at the Old Blue Last till three, four in the morning. Um, it was really fun. We had uh, a bunch of people come and DJ. We had some live acts. Um, it was it was you know something that me and two mates were doing really for fun. And through that, I ended up meeting uh, James Ford and Jas Shaw, who were friends of friends. Uh, and actually, it, it's quite interesting at what small world it is, because they were friends with lots of people I was friends with, sort of tangentially, and we, but we hadn't ever met until they came to DJ uh, at, at one of our club nights. And, um, and it was just really good timing. This is like a sliding doors moment, so to speak, on which pretty much the whole of the rest of my life... Um, unfolded Amazing. because uh, they were just going through the breakup of their band Simeon. Uh, they had kind of formed Simeon Mobile Disco as the dance music offshoot. That's, that's how come they were DJing for us. Mm. Um, they were breaking up with their manager and the manager took the lawyer uh, who they had been previously using, who was Gavin Maud at Russell's. And, um, and they sort of said, oh yeah, we really need a lawyer. And I was like, oh, I'm a lawyer. 
I didn't know anything about music law, I have to say. Uh, and pro- probably <laughs> probably should have told them that. <laughs> Eventually, I think I, because because they were maybe naive uh, or I was uh, persuasive or both, I ended up becoming their lawyer and, and very quickly moved um, to a music law firm uh, working with two partners who um, had both come out of major labels. I, I did about two years as a music lawyer working with various people and, and ended up managing some of my legal clients, um, among whom were Simeon Mobile Disco, uh, both James Ford and, and Jas Shaw as producers, uh, Little Boots, who we ended up signing to Warners and, uh, and having some success with, and a guy called Finlay Brown, who you know also had a bit of a moment and, and we, we'd made a couple of records, which we're still incredibly proud of. And I think, you know, he, he probably never took off in the way that he, he perhaps deserved to, but he, he was certainly one of the foundational artists that I, I learned to manage by working with. Mm-hmm. Um, very quickly realized that, A, I couldn't do all the work myself and B, there were quite a large amount of the work that I didn't really want to do. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, I, I like doing the stuff that I'm good at. I don't like doing stuff I'm not good at. And uh, so I started to figure out how I could kind of build a, a company and, and, and delegate some of the, some of the work. And, and, uh, and I think I'd always aspired to growing it a bit. Um, and, and where we are now is, is sort of the, um, the next, it's probably a third phase of the, of the journey. You know, the first phase being me on my own, Luke then joining the two of us working out of, we had one desk between the two of us at the premises studios on Hackney Road. Uh, where James and Jas from Simeon had their had their studio, yeah, yeah. and uh, we couldn't come in on the same day because we only had one desk. <laughs> and, and then you know eventually we kind of moved out of there and moved into an office in Haggerston. I, I actually I moved to the states between 2011 and uh, 2016, so was working kind of on my own there. And, and we sort of built built a company bit by bit with different people coming in. And um, you know the team we have now you know, largely have been with us for a long time. Uh, Simon Gold, I think, has been with us ten years, and he's you know a superstar manager, uh, somebody who came in as an intern, uh, became an assistant, became a manager, and now has you know phenomenal roster and um, is, is just you know doing incredible things. Uh, we have three directors, we have um, th- four managers now, and we're sort of in this phase where we're we're looking around and saying to ourselves, how can we? provide better services to our clients and how, how can we how can we investigate and, and kind of try out different models both for ourselves and for the clients that will um, yield better outcomes for them yeah uh, because I think everybody wants to work smarter and um, and more efficiently and it's the, there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity at the moment a lot of things we can experiment with definitely we've got loads of questions to, to to hit you with specifically about the artists but I'm really interested about that early period when you were putting on these parties total passion project but also daytime you've got almost that sort of split life of very corporate very ip you know unsexy stuff as you said when you first started making a business out of the art how did you find that was that an internal conflict or did that just come naturally that it felt right um there's always this tension between art and commerce and i think um good managers good labels good artists even um, get it right. And I think it's about uh, understanding this attention and understanding where the balancing act lands for you. I think necessarily for artists, because um, they're on the creative side, they will probably land towards the art and managers will tend to land towards the, the commerce. And you've got to balance that out. I've never found it particularly a problem. I think we've 
we've def- we've defined a set of values within the company now, which we've actually written down and, and published internally. I don't know that we'll ever publish them externally because I don't know how relevant they are to the rest of the world. But uh, what we're looking for is artists who share our values so that there isn't really a whole dispute over, oh, yeah, we want you to go and play this gig in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And, uh-huh. and they're like, no, no, we don't want to do that because we're ethically opposed to it. Like, you know, we're, we're pretty much on the same page as our artists. But when it comes to the, the sort mm-hmm. of the balancing act, I think what we're looking to do and what I've always looked to do when I was a lawyer and, and, and as a younger manager was to present the artists with opportunities to grow their business but also and, 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 to, and to monetize their audience, but to do it in a way which is compatible with having a long-term career. Uh, and I think, when you, I think when you train as a lawyer, you, 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 you're sort of well-versed in, firstly, worst-case scenarios <laughs> and, and secondly, in the balancing of rights and responsibilities. And it's, it's quite easy then to um, you know, give advice and um, either have somebody follow it or have them not follow it. And at the end of the day, I, I've, never, I've never been in a situation where I um, did something I regretted or, or, or didn't do something that I regretted with an artist. It's, it's just never really come up. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting and what you touched on, Ali, is that, um, like you said, this relationship between art and commerce, but now this this kind of always on, always producing content world that we live in. And I think, you know, when we look back to, you know, for example, your kind of management history of Bicep, I mean, I think from our notes, you started managing them in 2011, but the debut album didn't come out till 2017. I mean, I can't imagine if you signed with a major being like, we're going to sign with you, but we're going to give us six years or so for the first album. I mean, that would be like, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. So obviously you didn't sign with a major, but but how have, you know, how did that, that process work? I think that's fascinating that you can be with an act for so long. And obviously they do have an output. They are putting out tracks, they're DJing, they're traveling the world, whatever they're producing. But but can you tell us a little bit about that story and how you, you got from, you know, Managed them in 2011 to that debut album not coming out till like you know six years later. Yeah, I mean the joke uh, it, the joke is, and it's it, it's sort of not a joke it, that you know in the ideal world you'd have that six year runway before you get to the point of um, you know development for an artist. And I, I I genuinely believe that you have to be patient, you have to take your time. That said, I don't know that many businesses that can sustain um, that long a runway into. Um, monetizing value in a in a in a, in a project um i think with bicep they, they're a, they're a special case and they're a special act because you know you, you started off talking about um the, the content um sort of merry-go-round or whatever and there was a really interesting um short piece in music ally this morning which kind of um picked up on that chelsea cutler uh instagram post mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and and we yes, can talk about yes. that and i think it's really important to, to kind of get to grips with what algorithms have done to productivity and creativity and, and all of that but that wasn't the case when bicep started out now bicep had been before we started managing them they had been um absolutely brilliant as content producers because they were working on a blog which again for them was a labor of love it was a reflection of their musical passions and interests and they were unearthing uh, files of rare italo tracks things that they liked and it was in a time where not everything was online. So they were finding these things, digitizing them, putting them online and writing about them. Uh, the, the, mm. you know, we, 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 um, we talked to them quite a lot about you know, how we can work going forwards on maybe bringing the blog back in a serious way or, or, or what our content strategy actually is beyond doing the traditional things that we do at the moment. 
And uh, one of the things that I think it was Matt from Bicep said was, oh, yeah, it would take us longer to find the artwork images for the blog post than it would to find the music. And, you know, this was how fastidious they were about the quality of the content they were putting out. It certainly wasn't super disposable, you know, kind of TikTok, Instagram kind of posting. Uh, and that's, that's the world that we live in today. And, you know, for, for better or for worse, that's what a lot of labels are focused on. We go into meetings with labels who are pitching our artists and they want to talk about your TikTok strategy. I've never used TikTok. I don't know much about it. I don't know if any of our artists really use it personally. And you know, we do use it professionally for a few of the projects. Um, but I, I hope I'm not revealing any uh, secrets that will um, you know, kind of devalue my advice. I don't know anything about TikTok. You know, I know, I know that it's useful. <laughs> I know it's useful because I've, I've seen stories in the music press about mm. being useful, but it's not something that I personally have any experience of. I'm, I'm actually off social media largely apart from Twitter, which I, I like to use for football stuff, uh, but I don't really use any social media personally. And that was a decision I took a few years ago because I was spending time on it that I wanted to spend reading books and, and hanging out with my kid. You know, I don't want to be sat at home scrolling through Instagram. That's, it's amazing that you you mentioned when talking about bicep and the concept the 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 content that everybody else does. But you guys recently won an innovation award at the MMF's Artist and Managers Award, and that was between this is music, your company, and the act themselves, which I think is a beautiful thing to see both sides getting awarded for that that innovation. Um, it'd be great to talk about the Iowa's campaign, the second album from Bicep, and. Obviously, you know, we can't have a podcast like this without discussing the last two years of the hellscape of the live music industry because of the pandemic. But not not least because I feel like I heard apricots all the time on Radio 1 and 6 Music, but it did feel like Bicep really had a moment last year specifically. And yeah, I'd love to know about that campaign. You know, we've seen notes and articles on WhatsApp groups with fans and the artwork was just spectacular. A live stream with what? participants from 70 countries around the world how did you approach that and was that fully planned within the pandemic or was it kind of half planned was it quick turnaround change the plan how did that go uh, it's really hard to remember i think it was a bit of both <laughs> you don't want to remember i think i, I think it was a bit of cool no, it's so yeah. long ago now i mean you know we're coming up on this is this month uh, i think this this weekend is the first anniversary mm-hmm. uh, of, of the record and we've got a few bits and pieces planned like there's going to be a um playback on um, on Twitter and, and, and all sort of listen, listen back on Twitter. But in terms of how we planned it, we did have to pivot. Um, we obviously had touring planned to support the album, which we couldn't do. And that was where the live stream concepts were born out of. And I think it's really important to, to, to recognize that when we get an award for innovation, we, um, we, we're we obviously mega proud of getting the award with, with Bicep. But you know, I think to a large extent, they and their creative team are the innovators we put a strategy mm. together with them and we, we you know we i'm not trying to be sort of fake modest about it but you know we came up with the strategy with them but they execute that and there's no innovation without the creative side of, of what they delivered and, and i don't think it would have been successful ha- had we not been able to go from the first live stream which was brilliantly done to the second live stream which was different and you know they had so many refinements to our original strategy proposal we proposed these big picture strategy ideas can't tour, let's do a live stream. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- they then refine that down into the product that the fans consume, and that's why it becomes uh, successful, and that's why it's innovative. Um, how, how, we, how we did you know, things like the WhatsApp groups, and that's, that's simply part of the philosophy we have for fan base building. Uh, when you look at the um, algorithmic and 
data-based businesses and platforms that you have to work with, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, whoever, uh, you're working on the terms of those platforms. You are allowed access to your fan base uh, based on a take rate of whatever it is that they, you know, they get to monetize your data, your fans, uh, and they allow you access to those fans. And they change the rules from time to time. They change the algorithms from time to time. Uh, that is a very imperfect world for community building, for fan base building. Uh, one of the things that we are mega conscious of and, and striving towards getting better at is the idea of direct relationships with, with our audience. And uh, I wish we were as able to um, define how we've done that uh, on all our projects as well as we can with Bicep. Because with Bicep, we literally have these WhatsApp groups in which we can communicate with real fans in real time. Okay, WhatsApp's owned by Facebook, but, but never mind. <laughs> uh, at least we can have a direct conversation. And I, and I think one of the things that, that we'll be able to do in the future is find ways outside of WhatsApp to communicate directly with fans, to create a sense of community, to create real engagement direct to fan. And we, I'm, I'm really um, passionate about and, and you know, um, wanting to kind of follow through on this idea of a thousand true fans. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really important. It doesn't have to be a thousand, but, you know, small, small groups of um, fans who you can talk to directly without having a, a, an intermediary, you know, um, third person platform in between that's making money out of your data. Um, that's going to allow you to, a, deliver what the fan wants, but B, to, 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 to grow a business which doesn't rely on um, algorithmic platforms owned by other people with only their own interests or their shareholders' interests at heart. You know, I'm not down on DSPs. I, I love using Spotify. It's, it's great. But I totally understand why people don't want to be on it. I totally understand why people want to sell through Bandcamp. Um, mm. you know, do, 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 we, do we want our artists to... Um, abandon DSPs? I don't think we do because actually I was talking to a colleague about this this morning. I think that for Bicep, for Roosevelt, for um, for, for, for our, our artists generally, um, I, I, I think that in the long term, they will probably make more money out of their masters um, through st the streaming ecosystem long term than they would have done had we been selling a physical record, mm -hmm. getting a percentage of a dealer price on a one-time transaction. You know, if you think about the dealer price of a record, it used to be what six ninety nine or something. And if you sign a traditional record deal, you'd get maybe twenty percent of that if you're lucky, mm -hmm. less whatever deductions were in your, your, your horribly unfair royalty Those accounts. Lovely packaging deductions. <laughs> yeah, you know, packaging deductions, also all sorts of deductions, mid mid price deduction, budget price deduction. Anywhere they could reduce your royalty, they would reduce your royalty. Even even if you even if you aren't worrying about that kind of um, royalty calculation stuff. It's a one-time transaction. So even if you got the whole of the dealer price, even if you got all six ninety-nine, um, you know, on a, on a, on any transaction um, basis, you're only getting it one time. And so five years after, you've got catalog, but your catalog's not really earning for you unless you're syncing it. Whereas now, actually, if you can figure out ways to keep your fan base engaged, uh, then subject to the algorithm permitting it, you will get paid by your distributor or whoever whoever's looking after your rights for you, you will get paid long-term. So I think long-term, it actually does work out. My, my big uh, bugbear, the thing I'm critical of actually, is is the traditional deal models being applied to the streaming ecosystem. And it's obviously a huge hot topic in the music business. But I'm not that worried about what Spotify... I'm going to rephrase that. I'm not saying I'm not worried about it. I am worried about what Spotify pays per stream. I'd like them to improve it. But that isn't the biggest problem. I, I think the biggest problem actually is unfair record deals, which provide the lion's share of uh, digital income to record labels rather than to artists. And I think there's a, a certain point at which artists 
need to a protect their rights and, and b get the lion's share of that income if you know if, if not half of it so um that's 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 the thing that i'm kind of looking at sort of deal wise that makes a lot of sense bicep for one obviously huge stats on spotify specifically and number two album in the uk and irish album charts number five in the worldwide spotify album charts obviously uh, on the playlists as well they land on so many playlists that i just appear naturally by osmosis as well how do you find that for some of the more emerging acts you're working with editorially at the dsp how are you finding that not battle but is it something you worry about or does it just if it comes great we're building a fan base. Yeah, you worry about it maybe at certain points. I think there's a bit of a period of time where what you're trying to do is just put records out and you know trying to activate pockets um, within that kind of early adopter audience and an editorial is a big part of that. Um, but I think we are working on a bunch of development projects at the moment and it is really clear that if you don't get editorial support, you don't really acquire an audience. And we've been scratching our heads a fair bit about what we're, you know, what we're terming the, the cold start problem. When you're a brand new artist without an audience, how do you then connect with people who want to hear it? And, you know, just to use an example, typically the sort of music we work with is very much in line with the Alter playlist on Spotify. <laughs> and so Alter playlist for us is kind of almost preaching to the converted in a way. Uh, we would expect our artists to go on that playlist and generally they do. You know, I can't think of a, a project we've put out where we haven't had support from that playlist, which is fantastic. And you know, we're grateful for that. But in order to grow outside of that world and not just preach to the converted, but to find fans uh, in a broader sense, then we need to be doing something different. And I, I think it's it, the, the problem poses a question to which there isn't one solution. There's a whole menu of solutions and a whole toolkit that you need to address. And, and this is this is you know there's not enough time in the world to do all of these things, but you know what, what we're looking at is every single platform, which is right for the artist, which is right for the content strategy that artist has, which is right for the music that they have, the temperament that they have, you know what are they naturally inclined towards, and then we're we're, we're dealing with the problem fragmentation of, of media and you know the the lack of value in press. I, there's a perceived lack of value in press certainly early on for artists when there isn't as much of a narrative. Uh, how do you even have a conversation with radio? It's very expensive. Um, what is the relationship between radio play and streaming? Does radio play promote streaming? Um, you know, we've got a project at the moment, which I think typically you would de describe it as a development project because it's an, a brand new artist by the name of Anish Kumar, who's an unbelievably exciting, talented musician and somebody who um, just really lucky to be working with because he's so prolific and has such a detailed idea of how he wants to run creative and you know, really um, discerning. And, uh, and, and um, but you know, the reason why he's somewhere, you know, sort of further down the line is because he's been playlisted on Radio One as of this week on his debut single, which is, which is really like unusual. Um, we've been discussing with him the, um, the, the, the idea of the cold start quite a lot because he started throwing tracks up on YouTube um, and, you know, the level of engagement on YouTube is not that you, that you would expect from somebody who just got playlisted on Radio 1. Radio 1 is not sending people to his YouTube channel. They're listening to it on Radio 1 wherever they listen. And they're satisfied with that. They're, they're actually Shazamming the track a lot. It's, it's in the top uh, 30 or top 40 on Shazam. It's in the Spotify viral chart now. But, you know, the streaming, you, you, would, you would expect streaming numbers to be really high on a project 
which had so much radio support. And, and they're not bad. I'm not, I'm not negative about them, but then they're certainly not into the millions yet. Uh, and this is for a project that's been out for, you know, certainly a couple of months now and has just gone on the play. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, there's a, you know, I think uh, label sent us a, an update saying there was a 20% or 27% uh, improvement in streams just prior to going on the playlist. We'll have to see what the playlist does uh, and, and what our journey is on radio there. But, you know, that's, that is something we do, you know, we do worry about how to get outside of the, um, the natural environment on DSPs and, and, and into, you know, do, how do we fare on, uh, on the new music Friday playlist, which are very broad genre wise, you know, can we compete in, you know, we describe our space as underground to crossover electronic music. How does underground to crossover electronic music compare to uh, major label pop? you know um and, and all the other things that, that get thrown into uh, get thrown into those playlists you know can can we actually compete there yeah i kind of understand what you're saying i think it was kevin kelly that did it about the first a thousand fans you have are your most important yep. because they are your most dedicated and the ones that are going to take your message and travel and recommend your track to a hundred other people and they're just so engaged um and yeah it's it's really interesting we have quite a lot of young up-and-coming managers who listen to the podcast and they've just started managing an act and they love them and they'll say something like i've got 500 pounds or a grand or two grand for my first kind of single with my act. It's all done, it's all recorded, artwork's done, everything, he's the creative, whatever. But what should I be spending that on? Should I be spending that on press? Should I be spending that on radio? Should I be taking that two grand and doing an event or building something special on Discord? Like what would be your advice if somebody said, I've got an amazing new electronic act, his creative is amazing, we've done this great video visuals, I've got 2000 pounds in the bank, where should I spend that? What should I do with that, that money? I think it's a really hard question to answer. And, you know, we, um, even with the number of years we've been doing it, still ask ourselves that very same question. Uh, the first answer is it's different for every project. So there isn't a one size fits all answer. Uh, I think the second uh, caveat to any advice on how to spend a budget on a release is that your strategy shouldn't be focused on one release. It should be focused on a period of time, potentially a year. But, you know, if you want to be short term, six months to a year, uh, if you want to be medium long term, you're looking at, you know, one to three years. And what you want to be thinking about is how your single release or your next single release or next record release um, joins up with the rest of the plan. And, and that will inform your question about how do you spend your budget? Because if you just isolate the question, how do I spend, let's say, £2,000 from X distributor that they've given me to do this, let's, call, let's say it's a single, um, I don't think you can answer that question without knowing what the next release is and what the goal is in terms of are you going to get towards an album? Is your is your artist an album artist? They don't have to be. It's not sacrosanct that you have to do albums. So that's the first thing is like, how do you join up your strategy? That will determine what your spend is. I think it might be easier to say what I wouldn't spend it on starting out. I wouldn't spend it on press because I don't think until you've got a story, um, unless your artist has a story already, I, I just don't think it's worth spending on and, and i i'm not trying to be down on publicists there are some amazing publicists who give amazing mm -hmm. advice and they add value uh, on strategy they help with social uh, stories as, as well as create you know content creation ideas so you, you should engage with um prs but I, I just personally wouldn't do it for an electronic artist on the first go round. what you're actually looking to do is create a moment that resonates somewhere with within the bigger strategy that you have and and that's that's what will determine what you spend your money on so it might be you spend it on a video you might spend it on content you might spend it on uh, simply advertising the content you already have 
within uh, within the online uh, advertising world. Again, I I'm reluctant to advise people to spend all their money on um, advertising because I think you know you've got this cold start problem unless you have some really sticky viral content, and who knows what that is. You know, it's, it's really hard to predict what's going to be sticky and viral. Um, unless you've got the right content, then spending money to promote it, you won't see a proper return on investment. So, you know, ultimately, I think you can do quite a lot without spending money if you've got a patient long-term strategy and you don't expect to see immediate results within the first three months, six months, whatever. Uh, I, I think there's nothing wrong with creating a, a, a sort of online world for your artist, taking advantage of platforms which are free, um, you know, distribution and publishing, which is free on those platforms. Uh, the key to it is just making really good content. And then I think beyond that, what you're looking at doing is creating a community or network at, at which, uh, sorry, of which the artist is at the center. And and it's an interactive network. You know, there was, um, there was a, a sort of concept that, um, I don't know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, marketing used to be done via channels to an audience. And it used to be um, one dimensional, you'd pump, pump your content down the channel and it would be consumed by the audience. Now we're in a sort of network environment where actually what we're looking for is uh, a back and forth interactivity between artist and fan, between fan and fan, you know, having that, having that, those fan to fan networks and, and being, being able to create, um, you know, even very small networks of artist to artist. And I think it's really important to find artists who are uh, able to consider themselves part of an artist community. And that's, that's another way that you'll build up, build up your artist presence. So if you've got a big club record, then spending money to promote to DJs and, and within the within the club scene is, is a valid way to spend money. Uh, I, I think it's it's about just trying to do what you can without having to um, try and yield um, measurable results through spending initially. Because I don't because I actually don't think that there's that many results that you where you'll look back and you'll be like, oh, that was too grand, well spent. You know, at the end of the day, it might be that the artist has some crazy creative idea with like, I really want to make this. Um, amazing video and this is the idea i'm going to need 1500 to do it you know my mate's got a camera but we're going to need to hire some stuff that might be a valid way to spend it as well spend it on creative i just i don't i don't think that you, you know for two grand you're going to get um some crazy measurable result that will be the launch pad to your career i think it's much more likely to come out of just having a really solid set of um, set of tracks and, and 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 a strategy that isn't just what's going to happen with this release but what's going to happen this release to the next one to the next one and really look take a long view because two grand's not going to two grand at the end of the day isn't going to be a budget for twelve months. You know what you want to do is put yourself into a position where you find a partner who will back you for more than just one release. Who will back you for three, four, five, six releases. I think that is one of the best and most eloquent answers to that very difficult question we've ever had. Because that's so many routes that I think maybe someone just getting into the industry might not have considered, <laughs> and just looking at things in in a different way. Um, so I appreciate. Can, that. I, can I just I just want to add just so, so just to add something on that, which is. Which is the? I mean, we we, th we think about these problems a lot, and so you know, th these are things that I'm I'm thinking about on a daily basis. But one of the things that I'm yet to find a solution to, because we've got all this data, none of us are data analysts. We're not specialists. So actually, if somebody was giving me budget for something, and it would be it'd be a lot more than two grand to pay for it, I'd want to hire a data analyst who could actually tell me this is what your data says, and this is what you need to do about it. Those people are really expensive, and they're mainly working for tech tech businesses. Uh, but the big problem that we've identified and don't yet have a solution to is. When you've got all this data uh, and you, you know how many fans you've got on Instagram, you know how many, uh, or what your audience is, you know how many people are listening on Spotify. How do you convert that data into a measurable and worthwhile result for the artist? And that's, that's much more difficult. You know, cap capturing an audience on a social platform is one thing, but actually being able to convert that into 
probably the two most important things, uh, which are either record sales or streams and then and tickets. That's that, that's that's the magic. And you know, I just I think part of it, it may be going to instead of saying to your label partner, "I oh, want my two grand so I can spend it." It's probably going to find a label partner who has a data analyst or who has a mm-hmm. an audience acquisition department who gets your artist and gets how to get move them from A to B. Yeah, that's 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 really crucial. I was just really keen on discussing about the production business of a lot of your artists because I think that's obviously from inception of this is music. James Ford, of course, you you told us that story about when you met. He was moving from band to DJ and to then into production, and then of course has gone on to produce some of the biggest albums on the planet. How do you kind of manage that process with the artist? Is it quite a natural, okay, I've done an artist campaign and now I think I want to focus on production work or is it a constant juggle? Does one help the other? Yeah, again, different for everyone. Uh, in James's case, I mean, James is uh, fortunate to be the most talented person, <laughs> you know, certainly from a musical perspective that, I, that, I've, that I've ever met. Um, you know, he's he's up there with, with the absolute, you know, sort of the, the best and he's kind of at the... Uh, you know the, the, the zenith as a producer, and yeah. you know he, he's lucky that he gets to choose the projects he wants to work on. And he, when he started out, I mean, I, I think James had produced a number of records um, for him for his own band and, 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 and projects for himself uh, before we met. And um, one of the things that I was doing as a very new manager, and actually as a music lawyer as well, and this this wasn't through any great. Um, stroke of genius on my part it was literally i didn't know what else to do but i was putting my producer client Mm -hmm. with my artist clients and ended up um putting james in with a band who i was also the lawyer for called test icicles and i don't know if you remember test icicles but they were signed to domino they were were signed to domino Loved that band love that band they were amazing they were they they were amazing so so dev dev hines of course has gone on to great heights yeah he he was in that band james produced their first album and that was as a result of uh, him going in to make some demos for them because they, they were managed by a guy called mm-hmm. Ian Watt, who's also he's a very successful manager. Uh, but you know they needed some demos. James produced them. Domino signed them, and um, that was really the first thing James did for Domino. Fast forward, he's produced I don't know how many Arctic Monkeys records. Um, I, I, I will refrain from uh, talking about the next Arctic Monkeys record that James <laughs> has produced because it's probably embargoed. But you know he certainly you know, he certainly has, has built his career around that you know that backbone of, of having one band who he's done a lot of work for and i think um you know that's something that we're really proud of for, for james he's you know he's not just somebody who's gone and made lots of successful records for lots of different people but he gets a lot of repeat business because he's amazing to work with he, I, I i hope it's fair to say and I, I hope that i won't get in trouble of saying it that he, he's almost like a member of the arctic monkeys at this point because of mm-hmm. the level of input that he has um for other artists that we work with uh, we're always looking for, you know, everybody we work with is a producer. Everybody yeah. pl- plays instruments and producers. Uh, I think there's a time that's right for them to get into producing for third parties. It's quite a different gig. Um, you have to make more compromises. It's not all about you. Uh, it's one of the reasons why James is so good at it, actually, is that he's an amazing negotiator. Um, a, because he brings a lot to the table talent-wise, but B, because his... his um, sense of aesthetic and taste is so good and 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 he really like will improve any piece of music he's given to work on and but it's not just about can you improve it it's about can you get those improvements past a bunch of people or one person who's the artist who really cares about their vision um, and not necessarily about your vision the producer is not there 
yeah. be an artist. They're there to augment the artist, to facilitate the artist, to enhance the project for the artist. So temperament-wise, being a producer is not right for everybody. Collaborating in a room is not right for everybody. Some people do it better remotely, which has been obviously very um, interesting for people over the last two years where sessions have become remote you know, for a large part of the time. Uh, but, you know, we, we generally have a really strong approach to how we do uh, producer management work. Um, it is something that the artists uh, can leverage their artist records to bring in. Uh, I think Roosevelt's a good example. He gets producer work because other artists like his Roosevelt records. I mean, he's also incredibly yeah. talented and, you know, plays any number of instruments, um, has produced three of his, obviously th three of his own albums, um, has recently started working as a producer for other people and, and doing, doing lots of, of bits of work um, along those lines. But I think, you know, everybody we work with has the uh, potential to be super successful as producers. Bicep, um, have, I think only one cut to their name and that was a project. It was the, the, the last Jesse Ware record it actually didn't, wasn't on the album. It was a single that came out before the album. James Ford was mm -hmm. producing the album and, and brought mm -hmm. Bicep in to kind of co-produce on the track. They, they've been approached by loads of people. They haven't ever felt the time was right for them to kind of jump off into that, let's produce for other people. And I think it's partially a psychological mm -hmm. thing for them is like, how do they how do they want their work to go out into the world? And at the moment, they want it to go out into the world as, as Bicep tracks or, um, you know, un, under kind of a, a, a project that they have a lot of control over. So I think as a producer, you sort of cede control to the artist to a large extent. And as an artist, you cede control to the producer to a large extent. There's this, this balancing act going on. How do you, um, if we come away from production slightly and more into the writing world, um, some of the things that we've kind of been deep diving into recently is, and obviously there's been a lot in music press and the MMF and Musicians Union and various things fighting for kind of, more rights for writers I suppose because obviously they are no songs without them but they kind of get the bottom of the barrel when it comes to any kind of fees if you're lucky even you even get a fee as a writer um, and in terms of the cuts they get from publishing when it filters down to the DSPs and things how do you I mean I presume that most of your guys probably write and produce right it doesn't just sit it's not just a top liner who comes in and then vanishes and it goes into the the producer sphere how do you feel as as a manager and also obviously you you've been a lawyer and you still probably are in some respects how do you feel about those deals that writers have at the moment and how do you feel they should be shaped to make them more kind of sustainable for the future yeah it's a really good question the um the slice of the pie from streaming revenue from digital revenue that is purely reserved for writers is very small. And I think if you look at um, certainly outside of the kind of million, billion streaming tracks, if you look at the uh, publishing income that's driven by streaming, it's quite low. Um, I started out doing my first publishing deals before streaming and publishing seemed to represent actually a really good way to make a living. You get a, a solid advance and you could recoup that advance if your um, projects were the right ones. And, um, and I think there's some truth in that now. You certainly on our roster, there are people who have decent publishing deals with decent publishers who, who are, who are you know, backing them financially. But then when you actually interrogate you know, per million streams, what a, public, what a, um, a writer who has 50% of a song gets, it's very little. And so that's troubling because you know, we think about um, actually how, how to run a business for our, our clients. And when we look at the business, it isn't just, I, before I said it's the, the two important things are sales and streams and, and tickets, but actually 
the important thing is that every year we look at the artist's business and we say, how did your business do? Did you make as much money as you want to make, as you need to make? And are we stimulating progress and growth in line with the strategy that we all agreed upon when we started out this period of time working together? And, 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 and I'm, I'm deliberately being vague about all those things because every artist is different. And you know, some people want to earn as much money as possible in a short time as possible. And that's, that's their prerogative. Most of the artists we work with uh, want to earn a decent living, they want to earn a you know, sort of middle-class wage, and they want to have um, a, a proportion of free time for themselves, and they want to have total creative freedom. Um, and over time, they want to then see their businesses grow in line with the values that they have, both, both creatively and sort of philosophically. And, and so the question is, where does, where does writing and publishing fit into that as, as a sort of slice of the pie as an income stream? What we're seeing... We tend, to, we tend to try and prioritize deals that have the highest share of the revenue created for the artist. Um, so therefore, we don't take a lot of upfront money most of the time, although we have done some deals where we've done traditional publishing deal taken a decent sized advance. Uh, but where, you know, where, where, where we're um, starting to see good money coming in is at the higher end of streaming. And so you really have to have high consistent streaming to actually make decent money um, from that side of, the, of, of publishing and songwriting. Uh, would we work with somebody who was simply a songwriter and not an artist or not a producer? I, I honestly don't know that we would. Um, never say never. There might be somebody who comes up and we just fall in love with what they're doing. But I think it's it's a very specialized game, and I don't think we're specialists in that world. There are people much better than us who do it, who are specialists, and they're the people we go to when we want the top liner or we want a, a writer who, 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 who just writes. Um, but equally, I think as a business model, I think that's very tough. I think unless you're writing for Adele or you're writing hits – uh, I think it's really tough to be a writer, and I, you know, I don't really have a solution to that other than, um, you know, pe- people are saying, oh, we need to legislate to kind of uh, enhance the uh, income streams for writing. Um, I don't think there's a huge appetite to legislate. I, you know, I think that obviously the, the recent select committee hearings uh, were very interesting, but has there been actually any action? Um, we'll, we'll we'll see where that where that ends up. But I, I think with everyone's very focused on. Um, you know, streaming revenue and, um, and, and um, you know, equitable remuneration and that kind of stuff. No one's really talking about um, how to make sure that writers are fairly compensated. I mean, it's a struggle to even get a writer's page on Spotify at the moment. I don't think James has one. You know, James, James has done a fair amount of writing. I don't think he has a writer's page on Spotify. Uh, we're waiting for them to open up some more. But, you know, a good starting point would just be to give, give writers a bit more kind of public credit. Uh, you, you can see who writes a track on most of the things on Spotify and Apple. But, but actually, beyond that, they're not really getting the same level of um, awareness and, and credit that uh, the producers are. And then, if you know, off the back of giving them credit and giving them you know, more more awareness, maybe then there'll be a, a better conversation about um, you know getting them paid fairly. So something we try and promote on the podcast here, and we're quite into, is talking about balance. I suppose is is the term rather than mental health, which is. How do you, as a manager, because a manager is not a nine to five, I think we're all very much aware of this now. How do you, as a manager, strike balance? I'm, I'm really lucky that I have an amazing team that I work with in, in the company. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of um, sharing of, 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 of work and of stress. And I think we all kind of like help each other with that. But I'm sort of, I'm lucky in that, in, in the regard that I, I very rarely get a call at 11 o'clock at night with a crisis situation going on, certainly not for a number <laughs> of years. So I think my, my stress levels are, are that bit more manageable as a result of that. Um, I, in terms of things that I do personally, uh, 
some years ago it was a lot of yoga i don't do so much yoga anymore but i'm i'm really i, I exercise religiously like if i don't exercise i don't mm. feel good um so i run i do crossfit uh i go to the gym um i did meditate i, I love meditating i don't do it enough i, I wish i had a regular practice I wish i could say that i meditate but I, but I don't really but i think there are things that i do that have a med, you know meditative effect R- running is, is mm. probably one of those um I um, I think also it's just important to delineate the line between work and and personal life, and I think when a lot of the time it's it's um, fluid and, and malleable and that's okay, but sometimes you've got to have hard lines, um, and, and that's that's just important to preserve mental health. I'm lucky in that my mental health has been fairly robust. You know, certainly sometimes get more stressed than other times, but I, but I certainly don't recall many sort of huge personal crises caused by work or otherwise i'm really lucky again that i have a mega supportive family um, who understand the work and and who are just you know incredibly um foundational um for for for, for me being a being a you know sort of functioning human being um i think also the philosophy of stoicism uh, and it sounds like a funny thing to say but during the pandemic uh, we, as a, because we weren't in the office together, I, I guess we still are during the pandemic. But the first part, the, the more, maybe the more, the more worrying part of the pandemic, um, we uh, we still do a daily Zoom, but we instituted a daily Zoom, and we we'd kind of share um, bits of like Stoic philosophy, sort of Marcus Aurelius yeah. and, um, and and people like that, Seneca, and and so we we'd, we'd all sort of like you know learn a bit about those kind of thinkers and then how to apply them. There's a guy called Ryan Holiday who has a podcast called The Daily Stoic, who, who I got I've really into. I just finished into. his book about the ego. It's a super interesting philosophy. Yeah, lots of those tools. Those are those are some of the, the, the kind of key kind of philosophical tools. But really, it, otherwise, it's just it's just taking time for myself. I watch a lot of football. Um, you know, I, I don't go out that much anymore. And I think actually one of the things that keeps me sane is going to bed early. I get up really early. I go to bed early if I can. Uh, but but just take, taking time for myself. I'm I'm absolutely not shy of taking time for myself. Um, I, beginning of the year, I went off to the Russian baths, um, at Banya number one in Hoxton, um, for three hours on a Monday afternoon. And I did some email from there, but you know, just on my own, had a bit of a nice time just to decompress. And I thought maybe I'll do that once a month. Maybe I'll do it every week. I don't know, but it's, it is about, it is about just taking time for yourself. You, you can't be on all the time. You, it's impossible. No one can live like that. Amazing. That that feels like a really good place to end. I was only going to bring up one last thing, which was we, we started by chatting about biceps and the, the incredible year they had last year. How did it feel at any of the shows that you were at on that run that was delayed? You know, there was three sold out nights at Brixton. There was a two massive shows in Belfast. How did that feel to see it finally realised after all the successes that second album had? Um, I think three feelings. Uh, firstly, a massive sense of relief that those shows were happening finally. Uh, secondly, uh, pride, uh, pride in, in Matt and Andy and, and the, their whole creative team and the tour management team and, and, and Simon and Sasha from, from, our, from our office who run the project. Um, and, and then just joy because uh, not, and that was as a, as a fan more than anything else. Just see, I, I, you know, I love the music they make. I love seeing them live. And there was a massive amount of joy seeing them three nights in a row at Brixton, seeing them at field day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I was just so happy because it was, I hadn't seen... I think prior to field day, I hadn't been to a gig for however long. Right? No, I'd, be, I'd been to like a socially distanced, a couple of socially distanced shows. I hadn't been to a proper gig with an audience. It was it was amazing to be in a crowd. Nice. It was amazing to see people dance. It was amazing to dance myself. And again, mm-hmm. you know, don't do enough of that. I think I could do with a bit more of it. 
Can we just ask, um, can you tell us about a song that has soundtracked your life? And what I mean by that is it dubious, you associate this song with a big event or change or not even a big change. Maybe it's the song that you always listen to on the bus in school. Maybe it's even a song that changed your life because it was your first big hit you had with an artist. Like, is there a song in particular that, that when we say, what's what's your song or a song that kind of soundtracked your life? What what is that? What track is that? I think as a, as a, the first thing that jumped into my mind was Simeon Mobile Disco Hustler. Uh, and I think just because it kind of was one of the first, um, I, it was never really a hit song, but it was definitely an underground club hit. I used, I, I used to get a real buzz from hearing it played out by other DJs. And, you know, just it, it's, it's also an amazing, it's an amazing record because it's just so idiosyncratic. And it, it really was, you know, sort of the zeitgeist of the time. Uh, so I think I'll, 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 that was the first thing that jumped into my mind. Brilliant. 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 Thank you so much, Ollie. Well, well thank you so much, man. Um, amazing to chat to you it's so good to just hear that passion you know that you got so excited every time you mentioned another one of your artists and just went on another tangent about it which is just so good to see and I think it's bizarrely I think we've done what about 20-25 mm. of these interviews and you're one of the first managers to speak about strategy not just as a buzzword or, or a strategy or vision you've actually gone well we do this as a process and loads of managers do obviously you have to it's a huge part of the job but I feel like you're embodying that in, 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 in what you're doing. So it's been brilliant to hear a bit about that. So thank you, man. Thank you for the well, thanks for sharing. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Cheers. Thank you. Nice one. Cheers, man. Yes, Ollie. I loved this chat, Ali. And it's something I really needed to hear for myself because I think it's been two years. We know what's been going on in the world in that time, yada, yada, pandemic. And I just loved Ollie's like enthusiasm and the way he just... Yeah, the incredible journey he's been on with his artists in that process and all these two years. And I just thought, yeah, I just needed to hear that. I needed the positivity from him and I loved it. So it was great. Yes, all about that. Thank you so much, Ollie and This Is Music team for setting that up and spending some time sharing those pearls of wisdom with us. Uh, we are going to be back in two weeks' time with another episode in your feed. If you want to hit us up before that, it is at ManageThatPod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and if you want to let us know, anyone that you would be interested in us talking to someone that you think's got a totally different perspective someone that is innovating like nobody else let us know at manage that pod and we will see what we can do to get them on we are also going to be starting a spotify playlist of all the amazing tracks that the managers talk about in the podcast so we'll stick that in the show notes go and check it out big shout out to the music managers forum if you've not heard this podcast before and you've not heard of the mmf before and maybe you're interested in music management or you're looking for some support or guidance. Maybe you're even an artist looking to take things to the next level and find a manager. Check out themmf.net to find out more. We will see you next time. Bye.